Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners, and welcome to this epic episode of the Feeling Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, ready to harvest spice while avoiding giant sandworms, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Man, forget that. I'm here to ride a giant sandworm. I don't want to avoid them. I want to get on them. That's going to take some particular skills to do that based off of what I've seen. So if you can do that, you've got props. and, and Desert power. Desert power. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'd respond to the voice. I don't know. <laughs> you know. Well, this week we are discussing the highly anticipated grand fantasy adaptation of Dune brought to us by one of our favorite directors, Denis Villeneuve. I hope I didn't butcher his wonderful name. Uh, right now, you should catch it in theaters. But if you can't do that, well, try to get out of whatever you were doing and go to a theater, please. Go to the theater to see this. It's also on HBO Max. But theater. Theaters, please. Okay, just do that. Theater. Definitely theater. Definitely theater. Also HBO Max, but definitely theater. All right. With that out of the way, this is the point in the show. We get right into it. Spoilerific territory. We're going to talk about all two hours and 38 minutes of this grand movie. So... Please join us for the conversation after you've seen it. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If not, good luck. We're all counting on you. Sorry, we're spoiling it. Right. Okay, Aaron, this is one of your, if not the most anticipated movie of 21. Would that be fair to say of 2021 for you? I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Dear Evan Hansen was up there. Mm-hmm. Top Gun Maverick was until it got, you know, delayed 15,000 times. The pulled and- out. Yeah. But this was among my most anticipated films, and I had intentionally kind of let my excitement wane a bit. I hadn't watched any trailers. I hadn't followed any of the marketing. I was trying very hard to stay completely clear of anything other than just a poster of this film. And so because of that, it sort of, I don't know how to explain it, but like my hype level was lower, even though the internal desire to see it was as high as any film that was coming out this year. But this is a franchise that you're familiar with, or at least a property that you are. You've read the books. I think you saw the 1980, is it 1987? I don't know when the, in the original film and it's multiple iterations <laughs> were released, but you're familiar with this property and all it's entailed. So I know that what I wanted to start out with in our conversation is perspective because you and I are coming from really polar opposite point of views. Not for and against, but just different. Because I think I've said on the show, at least in our conversations, there are certain genres of movies that I just do not gravitate towards. Epic fantasy is one of those. Lord of the Rings is probably peak for me. But when you get into things like World of Warcraft or things that have you know more period piece centric type things, I'm not as into those. So Dune, for me was one of those that I wasn't necessarily over the moon about. And it was really interesting going into it because I had literally zero knowledge of previous iterations. I have not read the books. And so I'm that guy. I am that spectator going into the movie theater incredibly green. And I got to tell you, it kind of rattled me a little bit. I mean, we're talking... Literally, probably. It did, yeah. (laughs) So so full disclosure, when I go see movies to save money, I go to standard features most often, especially if it's a movie that doesn't really necessitate having like an epic kind of sound experience. Um, At your request, I got as close to IMAX as I could. I did the Regal Premium Experience, kind of their version of IMAX. RPX, I think. Yeah, RPX. RPX. Which is basically really big, really low, really loud. And I have always, I've started to, when I pick my seat, it's always the middle seat just before you get to the handicap row. So I have the bar that I can put my feet up on and I've got as much of a screen around me. And so walking into Dune, I was really looking forward to this. And I walked out going, man, that was a lot. That was, it was just, it was epic. And I think that walking out of it, 
my expectations waned a little. Well, my expectations were not there. They weren't very high. And so when I left, I was really kind of conflicted because there was so much about the movie that I really enjoyed, but I felt like there were pieces that were missing. And it may have been because it's part one of two. It may have been that there is a lot, based off of conversations I've had with people who've read the books, there's a lot more to the story than just what we get. And I, and I knew that going in. But I had bias. And this really sort of amplified that bias. And somebody said, what did you think about it? And I said, it's not the movie's fault when I say this. It's not Denis Villeneuve or Hans Zimmer or anybody else who worked on the film. But it already has a strike against it because I don't dig this franchise or I don't dig this genre. So if you had me go see World of Warcraft and it was the most amazing technical piece of fiction ever, I probably would have still come out of the movie going, eh, okay. Now I walked out of this one going, cool. That was really neat. Would I go back and watch it again? Maybe. But I wasn't that guy who said, you know what? I didn't pick up on something. I want to go back. I can't wait to queue it up on HBO Max so that I can go back and see, did I miss that? Or I want to dive into more. You know, It's not like I want to go back and watch the original. It's not like I want to go back and read the books. And so I was really torn as I left it going, it was wonderful, but I don't really care about seeing it again. But it's not the movie's fault. And it's really weird to feel that way, you know, because I, there's no knocking it. It's a great yeah. movie that I don't want to see again, if I could sum it up that way. Yeah, that is, it's very strange. I, I have a question. I, I want to get clarification on this, and maybe you can answer this, maybe you can't. But so what is the difference between, or what is it about Star Wars that allows you to be excited, be interested in? Because Star Wars is space fantasy. It's sci <laughs> fantasy. This is sci fantasy as well but on a little bit more of a science fiction slant because it's got mm -hmm. more of a, a humanistic like a, a realistic earth-based kind sure. of understanding of cultures yeah more so than star wars does and then of course you know your lord of the rings is your full-on like high fantasy is what that's called you know sure. elves and, and dwarves and stuff so wh why is it what is it about star wars that is maybe different for you than something like this i think star wars as a as a trilogy, the original three, I can leave it at that, or even the main nine films, doesn't give me so much depth. It doesn't force me to ask questions about, wait, what are they talking about? They're referring to this planet that apparently happens to house these people that I know nothing about. It doesn't go into a lot of detail. The original three Star Wars, episodes four, five, and six, are really just... A morality tale in some cases it's really like a the hero's journey played out with lots of cool special effects with american accents if you will kind of casual dialogue whereas when you get to things like lord of the rings or dune there is this almost sophistication that feels a little bit untouchable for me as a spectator someone who's watching this and and I I mean I, I honestly I have some of that feeling for Lord of the Rings. Now I enjoy everything about it, and I think part of that is because I've read the books. I deeply appreciate and adore J.R.R. Tolkien as an author, so I have personal connections to those. And so when I mention those kind of high fantasy or the human connected fantasies like Dune, it takes more connective tissue either knowing backstory a little bit better, having a little bit more of a history or getting more exposition that allows me to care a lot deeper about the characters because there's a lot going on here in this movie that I had questions about that weren't distracting, but I did leave it going, well, wait, he's from that planet. What, what, what about that planet? Oh, we only got about five minutes to kind of explain what that was. And, and, and I think that's part of it is that there's so much, it's so robust, these kinds of worlds that are built in these big ones that I don't really want to, I'm lazy, honestly. I don't want to take the time to do that. But Dune kind of, kind of inspires me to want to a little bit. Well, well, I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't think you can ever fully change necessarily what you like and what you don't like for one thing, because 
I think next week's episode is going to challenge you in a similar way where you're going to, there's a lot you're going to like about it. And there's parts of it that are going to go in a slant that you typically don't like, just like I typically don't like, but I was able to kind of accept those parts within the context of the whole, because it was, it was overall more interesting. Like I don't, I'll never love certain genres. I can experience parts of that that I enjoy. And so I, I get what you're saying, but like, I think the difference between like a Dune and a Star Wars is exactly what you're saying in that Star Wars is meant to be for all ages. It's meant to be understandable at a very popcorny, entertaining level. And the exposition you get is plenty on the nose to explain things. It doesn't leave things out and it doesn't expose you to a gigantic, broad universe spanning issue in a way that like a Dune does. So Dune and then Foundation is the other one, the other sci-fi series that I grew up loving. And both of them have been called unfilmable in many, you know, for many years just because of how dense they are. And that's the reality is they're dense. This is a book that deals with politics, economics, religion, mysticism, fantasy, science fiction, like warfare, there, there are betrayal. There are so many elements going on that you can't possibly capture it all without doing something like Peter Jackson did. Peter Jackson did, a, it's unfair what he did because he set this bar that is literally probably unattainable for anybody else. I, I don't know that it can ever be matched. And I don't just say that as a mega Lord of the Rings fan, but I'm saying as someone who is rereading the Lord of the Rings books right now and realizing again, like the specific pieces that he had to leave out of the story, Dune is as close as you're going to get to that in the science fiction world, I believe. And the reason I believe that is because it captures the feel of the book. Okay. And I, for me, that's what I wanted, right? I didn't want the book because the book is unfilmable because the book is exposition. It's people sitting in a room like discussing politics and what happened when Star Wars tried that. We all were like, wow, this sucks. <laughs> so there's a reason like it, that's not exciting. You need to find a way to at least let your audience understand the big scope of what's happening in the universe and that this is a universe spanning issue, but that you're focusing on this one like distinct point in time that is going to change things massively. And then everything else has to, you have to just kind of let little nuggets get your point across or else you have to make it three plus hours and you have to stop what you're doing and have characters sit there and talk. There are a couple very famous scenes in Dune that are missing. Like one of them is a dinner party. Would have been awesome to see, but it would have completely stilted the flow would have given more character backstory or depth to some of the people would have explained some things a little bit more thoroughly, but like it would have not added anything that we didn't already get with the tone. And so for me to answer the original question, like that was what I wanted going in. Mm -hmm. And I think that it does do enough to bring a new audience in. And I say that because I think, the technical craft is so strong and, and Denis is just the master at this in the sci-fi realm of being able to present something that even as cold as Dune is, emotionally speaking, it's not like, it, it, it's not like a rival, right? His other sci-fi kind of, well, one of his other two big sci-fi masterpieces. Arrival's all about like character feelings and emotion and what's happening within them. You don't get a lot of that. Dune is so much more high level kind of emotional. It's, it's not deeply intimate with each of its characters. It can't, it doesn't have the time to be. And it really isn't in the books that much either because you are spanning this big giant picture. So what he does is he compensates for dialogue and exposition with visual design, framing, and Hans Zimmer's amazing score. And he lets that do the storytelling. And that's what makes it brilliant to me is it's not a beat for beat, perfect retelling of Dune. It's, it, it gets everything that it needs to get in there, 
to tell the story it can tell cinematically. And I think that that brings new audiences in because it's just like you said, you can maybe not understand everything that's happening. You can maybe not even care about everything that's happening, but you're still in awe of the scope and the presentation of what is happening that that stuff kind of doesn't matter as much. You can enjoy it versus hate it. Right. And I think that I land on the former rather than the latter. Like I was not frustrated that I didn't understand everything. I will say though, for those that are new to that world, like me, in order to put it on rewatchable status, because it does need to be rewatched. I mean, it's a lot. It's two and a half hours of a lot going on. And I think a better appreciation comes from a rewatch. And that's a whole different topic of conversation. Can a movie live on one viewing? I think that's a stupid question because movies should be made to watch more than once. Uh, if they're good, if they're longstanding and, you know, spoiler alert, we'll probably be talking about that here in the next several weeks regarding a certain movie. But I think that when you get to a place where you're watching something like Dune and you're a first time entry into that, there's got to be something or a series of somethings in that film that leaves you wanting to come back. And I'm a huge proponent of rewatching stuff. I mean, look, I, I will watch Casino Royale multiple times over the other Daniel Craig movies, not because it's so much better, but because it has familiarity. There's a lot that I just enjoy. And so there's, there's rewatch, there's rewatchability from the sake of just enjoyment because there are pieces and parts that I like to, live in i like the opening sequence the parkour sequence near the beginning of the movie i like watching that i love the dialogue between him and vesper on the train and i want to re-experience that so walking away from dune at least this time around i didn't feel like there was something that maybe want to grab onto and say i'd like to experience that again and i will say that i think part of it may be due to technical stuff because when I watched it in RPX, there were times, honestly, where I felt like I was watching Dunkirk. Either the mix was too off, I couldn't hear some dialogue, especially during a couple of crucial sequences. I really had to kind of look at facial expressions and body reactions, you know, this nonverbal communication to go, oh, he's upset at this, or she's ready to go do that, or she's visibly scared. And that frustrated me a little bit. Is that Villeneuve's fault? Probably not. Is that Zimmer's fault? Probably not. Is it the fault of the theater? Maybe. I don't know. And I can't really, I don't want to put blame on someone or a group of people. But I know that that's a component, especially when you have a lot of that going on at once. For me personally, I like quieter films. I'm not necessarily the guy. I mean, I've, you know, maybe I'm that get off my lawn old man who doesn't want loud movies, right? I want to watch the independent films or the coming of age stuff that just has kind of a quirky soundtrack and a lot of great dialogue. So I fully admit that my bias slanting towards those types of experiences come into that. But the, the optimistic perspective I took leaving the movie was like, that was beautiful. Like, I loved living in the world of Dune for two and a half hours. I just wish I could have heard more of it, right? I wish I could have understood more of it. Now, if that means that part two is going to sort of not fill in the gaps, but it's going to complete the story, I feel like three years from now, I'm going to have a better appreciation for Dune. And look, the fact is, you love it. So by default, it's going to be a three out of five if I'm going to give it a ranking. Because there are very few movies that you and I are completely like opposite on. And even the things that we know you and I love or don't love, you're going to be like, hey, try this out. You may not like it, but even like the, the, uh, what was the one you watched? The Matt Damon, Ben Affleck film that. The Last you, Duel? Yeah. You asked me offline, you're like, I'm curious why you didn't, you know, why you didn't gravitate towards that when we were working on our schedule. And I said, it's, you know, period piece, not really my thing. And it just so happened that it wasn't higher on your list, that it didn't, you know, wow you. It was disappointing. I didn't put a feather in my cap being like, yes. <laughs> no, I want films to be good. 
I just know that I have to be realistic about when I watch a movie, there's going to be that kind of bias. And so it forces me to be a lot more deliberate in saying, not whitewashing, but more about saying, look, what do I appreciate? And I want to talk about that now. And the first, go ahead. I just want to point out just real quick, that's being critical. Like what you are talking about right now <laughs> is I often don't think we're necessarily really film critics in a lot of ways. Sure. Me, you, Coles on FF Plus even, because a lot, I mean, we generally talk about what we liked about a movie and we enjoyed, mm -hmm. which is purely subjective. But what a real true film critic, like the, the greats can do, and I will reference somebody like Alyssa Wilkinson because she made a thread about this on Twitter that actually kind of hit home for me. And she was talking about how so many writers don't actually do any film criticism. And she can say that because she writes like 5,000 word pieces about a movie every single week. And it is the most incredibly in-depth stuff. It is so much different than anything I've ever done on voice or in writing. But what true film criticism she was expressing is is actually challenging the making of the motion challenging the making of the motion picture and looking at it to say what if this was was this the best option for this was this the best option for that what would have looked like if you'd done it differently would it have worked as well would it have not worked as well and like you know whether you enjoyed it or not being able to do that and oftentimes I personally get swept away and I don't want to talk about the little nitpick. I just say, oh, yeah, I had some nitpicks and let's move on. Right. But being a film critic is to dive into the nitpicks and to say, I didn't like this. And I think that this was a miss. However, I still absolutely love this film and it's an all time favorite and it's five stars. Like, but I didn't right. like this. And here's why I can understand. And that's what you're saying right now. And I just yeah. I appreciate that. What, well, and it's almost like in. <laughs> And I, I'm glad, and I'm glad you see that. I see it as almost like that same thing from an opposite point of view, because there wasn't anything I didn't like about it, a apart from the mix. And again, I think the mix was a theater issue. I don't think it was. I don't think it was the fact that Villeneuve was like, "Hey, let's make this sound like Dunkirk," because I know you can do that, right? Can't you, Hans? And he's like, "Yes, absolutely. Let's blur dialogue and let's really frustrate our audience." No, I don't think that's the case. I think it was just a bad mix. So when I rewatch it, I will give myself two and a half hours when I have two and a half hours and I'm not half asleep. I will sit with my headphones on and watch it on HBO max because I think it deserves that kind of rewatch with a little experiment. Was it just the mix? Can I, will I feel better about being able to hear the dialogue and will I appreciate it more the second time I watch? But the thing is, is it's almost the opposite of what you're saying in that I can give something a five-star you know, rating, even though I can nitpick everything. I didn't have any nitpicks. That's the thing is it's technically beautiful. I think it tells a great first half of a story, honestly. I think that the exposition at the very beginning, it's jarring because I don't know that world. You know, we're getting images, we're getting voiceover, we're getting a lot of stuff thrown at us. And like any movie that you go into where you have no idea what it's about, you you do have to kind of acclimate. I mean, look, if I watch a James Bond movie, I know what to expect. Even if things change, I know that I at least have a palette of familiarity that I can pull from. Same thing with like a superhero movie. But now you're talking about a completely different franchise or Arrival, for instance. Movies that have an interesting premise or you call it a, an original idea or a refreshing idea, those take a minute to really get yourself into the flow of what's being talked about. And when Timothy, Char when, when Timothy Chalamet comes on screen that and he starts dialoguing, I'm starting to latch on. I'm like, okay, cool. And you start mentioning the spice. Okay, great. Okay, now I'm starting to kind of make those connections. And so when we get to the end of the movie, I was really satisfied. So there wasn't anything technically that I was like, mm -mm, that was a bad decision. I think it would have been better if you did this. It was really more about recognizing my personal bias and recognizing the limitations that come from entering into a world that you have zero backstory about. And so I think that's why rewatches are important because you know what's coming. You know what 
is going to pop up on screen and I can pay more attention to that exposition dialogue. I can pay more attention to some of the scenery. By the way, there were a couple of scenes, a couple of uh, cinematic shots where I felt like the ships looked eerily familiar to the ships from Arrival. <laughs> and of course, I feel like I don't think that was intentional, but I was like, oh, look, it's, you know, it's director trademark. Let's throw giant ships in the distance that look really, really like ethereal and, and mysterious. Right. But I enjoyed all that. I, I really did. And I especially enjoyed the world building. Like this was probably one of the more interesting things about this for me is we get these houses, these you know ancestral houses, these factions, if you will, very Lord of the Rings-esque, right? And they're living on these planets, and these planets look distinct, and they're all led by these A-list actors that I'm so familiar with. And of course, again, going back to familiarity, I'm trying to put a Dave Bautista, you know, that I'm familiar with, on this character. I'm like, is he is he like, you know, the Dave Bautista that I see in other movies like Guardians of the Galaxy? Maybe he is, maybe he's not, but there's a connection there. I see an Oscar Isaac and I think, oh, it's Poe and he's got Ava sitting in the background ready to kind of take down some some bad guys. Again, I'm making these mental jokes in my head so I can create familiarity. And that's where I think I made the connection is those actors and what I knew of them felt comfortable in the places they were like they they fit in the houses they were in. And so. Because of that, I was really able to latch on to all these different characters that were being introduced to. And that's a hard thing to do, Aaron, to have all this stuff kind of come at you. I mean, we talked about this offline about Ted Lasso season two. All these characters are being developed and you're like, okay, well, who do I, who do I fall in love with? Who do I connect with? And, and I think that the beginning of Dune really does allow you to sort of get snapshots of here's who we're going to be working with. And then he starts connecting those pieces. And I think that he does that really well by bringing all these worlds together, but also, as you mentioned earlier, creating this large universal, this beyond the galaxy, you know, all over just this bigness that is really difficult to, to put on the big screen. Like, how do you, beyond saying a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, how do you bring people this giant universe that's interconnected in the first 10 minutes. And I think that Denis Villeneuve was really effective in doing that in a way that got us connected to who we were supposed to be connected with. And I thought he did that really well. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that you had that experience with it as well, because I think that it really does have this the epic scope that it needs to in order to get across the point. Now, you know, in the books, we're talking about so much more detail about what's happening with the Empire and why is House Atreides being sent to Arrakis. And there's a lot more that's going on in between them arriving and them ultimately getting betrayed and the setup, right? Like that's coming. And instead of we only get a couple of hints of it you know we get it's it's all tone i think it's all tone he does such a good job with the tone he always lent a sense of nervousness to duke leto and and everybody as they were on arrakis and as they were arriving and even though we don't have a long period of time where a lot of different things take place before the betrayal happens you always feel like they're in danger and you get one line from Oscar Isaac where he says something like, you know, I, I'm worried that we could be being set up here. You know, I, I want us to always be conscious of that. So he is able to do that without having big, long moments. And, and I think that that's so difficult to do. And Again, like we talked about, the visualization of it, the tone, the sound, all these things come together to get enough across. It's also interesting to me using, I love that you bring up the cast, because for me, I think that's huge. When you put this all-star cast into your movie, and it is to an actor, A-listers. You, you wrote that in the notes, it's full of A-listers. And it is, it's full of known star actors who could any one of them be leading 
their own film, but instead they're a little part, you know, like Aquaman himself, right? He is an absolute smash hit superhero working on his second film. And he's in this movie for 10 minutes, three scenes, I think, basically like one at the beginning, one when he shows back up and says hi to, to Paul and like takes him out. And then his ultimate death scene, like that's it. That's all we get of him as Duncan Idaho in this movie. That's all I'm going to say in this movie, but he is such a huge presence. And I think the ability for Denis to go out and get star actors like that brings a gravitas to those smaller parts that helps elevate them, even though we're only getting like little bits and pieces of those characters. Um, uh, you know, another one is even Oscar Isaac. He's in the movie, you know, quite a bit, but we're talking about a guy who he dies. Like he's a star actor, but he, he dies. Like how often do we see something like that? Usually it's someone like Sean Bean. Sean Bean was not on the level of Oscar Isaac. He never has been and certainly wasn't when Lord of the Rings came out, right? So when he dies as Boromir, it's painful and it hurts, but it's different than losing a star. You're like, because you don't believe part of it is that it's a like veil of fantasy that we put ourselves in as moviegoers where we just don't believe that the good guy who's a star actor is going to, you wouldn't kill him off that fast if you're paying to have a star actor in your movie. Right. And then boom, he's gone for, for people who haven't read the books, obviously. But I think that, yeah, I think the world building is amazing. And I actually want to touch on this. This is a great segue because you mentioned, you know, offhandedly, and I'm going to give you a pass on this, but I disagree completely. And I don't think you necessarily meant it because I don't think you necessarily thought about it, but you mentioned something about like, you know, the various houses and how it's very similar to Lord of the Rings. And I want to push back on it just a minute because I keep hearing this reference and not just you, I'm talking about like every Dune review <laughs> or all over the internet. It's like, oh, this is Lord of the Rings, but sci-fi. Dune is not Lord of the Rings. Dune is very much closer to Game of Thrones than it is to Lord of the Rings. Game of Thrones is about a bunch of different houses trying to live under one empire and make it work with tons of betrayal, politics, you know, it, it, like inter warfare that's going on between the two silently and, and all of these different like factors, whether it's race, whether it's economics, um, all these issues, right? Some places they even have a sand world in Dune, right? That is very different than like the mountainous areas. I'm um, sorry, in Game of Thrones, even though it's all on one planet in one like continent area. And I think that that's really a better comparison. The thing about Lord of the Rings is that Lord of the Rings is a story that is all about defeating evil and all about hope, right? It's all about like characters coming together, goodness to defeat evil and, and having this hope. Dune is a little bit different because there's not like this one big antagonist in the world, in the, in the empire world. It's more of a general political threat than it is like a, a typical fantasy like evil. And so when, if people go into Dune expecting Lord of the Rings-esque character development and feel, Lord of the Rings is about the journey of all of these like unique characters and how they come together as companions. Dune is not. Dune is so much bigger than that. I will say this, the part of Dune that is more closely to like the journey part and the character develop that's coming in part two. And that's part of what people get frustrated with at this movie. They're like, oh, it's, it's half of a movie. And that bothers me too, because it's like, yeah, it's half of a movie. Like <laughs> you've watched lots of part ones of movie. Why is that suddenly the thing that you're criticizing about this? What makes it different than any other property that's been adapted and cut into multiple pieces. And, and I think that ultimately people will revisit this. The ones that do have an issue with that will revisit it and see it differently once they have the whole picture. But yeah, man, it's not at all like Lord of the Rings in its tone and its feelings and the way that it's, you know, dealing with 
colonialism, and it's so much more like our world than Lord of the Rings, in my opinion. Okay, and I think I, I agree with you. I don't have a connection to Game of Thrones, so I can't make that comparison, but I trust you in that what I do know about Game of Thrones makes sense. That's houses and factions and things like that, and it's political. I wonder, though, and you may have already answered this, so I apologize if, if you <laughs> I just didn't hear it clearly, but why do you think there is a comparison to Lord of the Rings? Why do you think it's Lord of the Rings in space or, or whatever the comparison is? What is it about because it that makes that way? The scale. I think okay. it's the scale. It's it's epic scale fantasy. Like you're talking about this big picture world and a big picture threat or topic that is going on. And, you know, in one sense, yes, Frodo is on a quest to save the world. And Paul is ultimately going to end up sort of on a quest to try and do the same thing. I mean, it's not really a spoiler. I'm trying to avoid any sort of direct spoilers for part two for you and listeners who have read the books and don't intend to but i mean it's very clear and set up like he is believed to be a messiah white savior fact character like that is what paul is in the books like he comes in as house atreides and the world of arrakis is incredibly arab in its distinction like it's islamic based that's where it was kind of drawn from when frank herbert was writing it you know, and it's it's about colonialism and taking them over. And then Paul comes in and he is very messianic. You know, you, the, the Bene Gesserit talk about like the prophecies and, you know, we go through that incredible scene where he's, you know, being tested and such. And you get him having visions of like understanding. And, and if you know, hello, let's let's be honest about the references here. He's in a desert um, being, you know, tempted and going through this process like it's all intentional right and so i think that i understand where some of the kind of comparison comes in but i think it's really so much i don't think people think about it in detail i think they just say epic fantasy in you know with elves and magic epic fantasy in science fiction same thing and and they they have that similarity but yeah totally different stories and that's, I mean, that's a great way to explain it because as someone who would probably take the lazy man's approach, that would be the closest I would be to be able to comparing it. Having not seen Game of Thrones, it wouldn't be as accurate. But I think what you said exactly, the idea of, oh, it's epic fantasy. It's scaled so big. We don't have that in a lot of franchises or a lot of movies. I mean, Dune... Lord of the Rings, those are the big ones. And as you mentioned before, uh, or Foundation would be another one. I guess it's a, it's a television series now on Apple TV+. Plus. But the fact that these franchises, these IPs are so big in terms of their mythology, and they're so detail-oriented, they're so intricately written about, I can see where the Lord of the Rings reference would come in. Because if you look at... The book, the source material, it's a series of books. I don't know how many it is. I think it's, I was told today, <laughs> what we saw in the movie is basically like half of the first book or, you know, it doesn't even touch on the things that you find out about. So there's, there's definitely scale to the mythology of Dune. That same thing applies to Lord of the Rings in that you've got the three books, but you've also got the Cimmerillion that became source material for Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy. And so it just big and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that's probably why the comparison exists is, but I think you're right that it's a very general comparison on only one thing and that the meat of the story and all of the components of the story are different, that they more align to things like game of Thrones, which in and of itself, <laughs> seven seasons based off of a huge book series is epic in its, in and of itself. So I think, uh, I think you're right in that regard. That's probably a, a, a misrepresentation to compare it that way, but I can see why it is. You mentioned the idea of people getting mad that they only got the first half. I saw several tweets online of people kind of joking, like <laughs> I said, I was, I loved watching this movie until it ended, you know, <laughs> in the middle of the story or, um, you know, we get part one and I hope we get part two, because if not, that's going to be the greatest trailer ever for something that never happens. You know, and I joked about that when I 
was watching the second entry of the Pirates of the Caribbean. That came as a surprise to me. Got the original Pirates, which I think shouldn't have been touched apart from that. That's just my personal opinion. Second and third came along, and I felt like the second was sort of a bridge to get to the end of the story by the end of the third movie. This was really interesting because Denis Villeneuve does not pull any punches. He puts the typography Dune part one. And honestly, Aaron, that's pretty ballsy unless he knew already that there was going to be a part two because nothing was announced until like today that October 2023, we're going to get the sequel. I don't know if that was announced, you know, before the movie premiered, but let's assume that it wasn't. Let's assume that we just now found out about it. Knowing that this is the first of potentially at least two parts by that little typographic nugget there, does that change how you watch the movie? Or did that change how you watch the movie, knowing that it was going to end at some point with an incomplete story? And if it did or if it didn't, how does that kind of reconcile in terms of how we treat deliberate uh, trilogies or deliberate sequels? Because when I watch Avengers Infinity War, we knew that it was the first of two parts going in. We were just curious how it was going to end. And so we knew that we were getting an incomplete story, but we can talk about that movie as a complete story in and of itself because of everything that went on that led up to the moment that gets us to part two, gets us to Endgame. I watch this and I go, okay, it's part one. How do I digest this story? Do I digest it as saying, all right, I'm going to appreciate it for a beginning, middle, end of a two-part beginning, middle, end? Or do I forgive a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the backstory knowing that we're not going to get the complete story? For me, it was fine. I think I got a, enough in the first movie that it's enjoyable on its own. And when you tell me at the very beginning that it's not going to be finished at the end of two and a half hours, I was okay with that. I was okay knowing that if it ends... I can potentially make my own story up. Okay, what what's going to happen? We know that at the end of this, okay, they're walking, they're going. All right, well, maybe I'll read the book now or the books <laughs> or maybe I'll go back and watch the original movie and get really confused. But for me, it didn't bother me. I didn't feel like it was necessarily something that was a bad thing. I almost felt like it was uh, Denise's way of saying, hey, guys. I'm not telling the whole story. I'm not going to try to. I'm going to tell my story, and I can only tell you this much. And I also felt like it ended at a good point. I don't feel like it was like, what? The credits just rolled? What What are we doing here? It's not like A Quiet Place or A Quiet Place Part 2 where it ends like, what? Wait, what? Are we, are we getting a sequel or not? No, we are, potentially. Or at the very least, we're not apologizing for not telling the whole story. And I think that's how I felt leaving that, the movie. Well, yeah, I so I'm of a couple minds in this. One is that I think WB is horrible at the way they've handled a lot of their films and their franchises and their properties lately. Like they completely seemingly had a complete mess with the Snyderverse. And then on the back of that, now you have this. And, and so I'm blaming the studio. I put a 100% of the blame is on the studio. Everyone who has followed this movie and, and read even a little bit of news about it knew that Denis planned to make it into two movies and knew that D that WB was only going to greenlight the first half or one movie for now. And so I think every single person I've ever talked to about it that had any expectations and knew what Dune was knew that, that we were getting part one of a movie and, and was not expecting part two. I think that WB failed here because even if the reality was that financially they weren't going to greenlight part two until part one proved to be financially successful, which is I'm not in agreement with it from a fan side, but from a business side, I can understand that because of Blade Runner 2049 and how it completely flopped from the box office standpoint, even though it was a critical success and was one of my all-time favorite films so they didn't want a replication of that and then to be committed but yet 
if they didn't want to do that, then why would they let him only make half a movie? It's not like they didn't have a say in this. They knew what was happening. They knew that the Dune part one was in there when they put it out. And yet somewhere, some way, they didn't choose to put that in the title. And I think that that's a big fail is that for people like you who didn't see anything about this, right? Because it's hard for me to step out of the world that I'm in sometimes because I, I'm immersed in it 24 seven. But there, I, I try to remember and think back to what it was like when I was just another dude who found out about movies randomly through friends. and was like, oh, wow, there's a Dune movie coming out next weekend. Oh, I read that book when I was a kid. I should go see that movie. What would I go into this thinking? I would expect the full story to be told. So I think it's a fail that they didn't have it in the title in some way or shape of form. But I think that you at least put it in the opening credit the way that they did to set the expectation. And I'm glad that it worked out that way because I think it would have worked out that way for me too if I didn't know where I would have been fine enjoying the story. It's tricky though because it's not full. It's not complete. And it is a very good first half of the story. And it cuts it off right about in the middle and it cuts it off, I agree, at the right place because I know what's about to happen. And like, this is a journey from here on out, right? You get the setup, them arriving in Arrakis, them taking over the planet from the Harkonnens. You get the political um, intrigue. You know the Harkonnens are trying to betray them and they've been set up by someone somewhere, but you don't know what all is happening and how and why. And you don't know, you know, necessarily who they can trust. And you get to see the tragic fall. And then you get like this big long chase sequence of Paul getting run out into the desert and getting taken in by the Fremen. And all you know about based on this movie is the prophecy of what he potentially could be. And now you're seeing all of these little pieces fall into place that are pushing him towards that prophecy. And so you know when he makes that decision at the end of this movie and says, no, mom, although he doesn't say mom, but like he says, no, mom, we're not going to go back. This is this is who I am now. I'm here. This is where we stay. This is where we're going to go. And you realize like the next part of the journey is now he needs to unite the Fremen. He needs to lead the Fremen. And I mean, hello, we know he need they need a revolt, right? They have to take back their planet, essentially, is what you would expect based on the setup of the story. And so it's a perfect place to break it off, I think. And it's so tricky because no, they did not green light it until officially until today. Like today was the announcement where Legendary and WB announced and said, yes, we are going to make it. And they waited. They actually waited to see box office results and critical response to the film before they were willing to do it. And I, I'm just, I guess I'm just thankful that we live in a world where they said yes, because had they not, you know, like from a fandom perspective, we would have felt absolutely shorted and it would not have held up because it, it is not a story. It is not a complete story. And yet from a business perspective, you can't force people to spend a hundred plus million dollars or $200 million or however much money this freaking masterpiece of filmmaking kind of costs in order just to throw it away, right? Like we want it, but it, it's, I, I try to argue with people all the time about this. I don't try to argue, but I end up arguing with people all the time about this. Like it's a business. It is not art and movies and music and all of these things, the entertainment that we love, video games, they don't simply exist just for us to have fun. They exist to make, they exist because creative people want an outlet to create, but they also exist to create a, a money. They create revenue. Create right? a bottom line is what it is. They it, have to in order for an industry to sustain itself, to keep right. making more of the thing, right? And somebody has to give you the money for the thing that you like. People always say, speak with your dollar, right? If you like a restaurant, go to the restaurant or eventually, if everybody that likes the restaurant doesn't go to the restaurant, the restaurant won't exist because nobody went to the restaurant and kept it afloat. And so it's such a tricky thing, man. And I'm I'm just thankful that they're going to make it because I, I think they're taking a huge loss. And I don't understand the point, to be honest. Like, I'm just, as a fan, I'm just happy that it's happening. But, like, they're going to lose money, I think, on this big time. And why? <laughs> like, what are you getting out of it, I guess? Other than yeah. you did, you know, maybe you hope, I guess the hope is maybe it's so good 
that it garners some awards attention and then it makes its money up in you know home video sales later or HBO subscriptions once it rolls off of HBO Max or you can put it back out in theaters again prior to part two you know and try to reinvigorate and recapture some of that lost revenue but yeah it's just it's such a weird situation I I think it's I won't call it weird I think it's just par for the course because art is art can be profitable but it by nature it's not I think profitability is a byproduct of hitting lightning in the bottle right I think that you take risks, you do a risk assessment. I think when you put well-known actors in a movie that is not a popular franchise, it's not a Star Wars, it's not a Star Trek, it's not even a Lord of the Rings, it's Dune, <laughs> you can't afford to put actors in that that are not known. You have to anchor them in, and that's what helped me, like I mentioned before. The other thing, though, is with regard to this being part one of two, I agree, it's not a complete story. It's an enjoyable story, but I would have been more frustrated had that typography, had that message not been there at the very front. Because instead of leaving me with frustration of like, oh, you really left it there? Are you kidding me? Okay, I'll try to imagine this. It left me with intrigue of like, well, if this if this gets greenlit, there is somewhat of a responsibility by the storytellers to finish that story. You know, where are they going? What are they doing? You've asked the question, now you have to answer it. And I think that speaks to, like, I would get more frustrated if you, three years from now, didn't pay off some of the things that you set up in the first film on the big scale. I don't care about small stuff, but again, we talked about that with, Ted Lasso season two, you put all these different kind of nuggets in that you didn't address or you didn't pay off. And as, as a storyteller, that's stupid because now your audience feels cheated. Sure. We got a sequel like that. That would be the, the cynic in me that says three years from now we get a sequel and it doesn't live up to our expectations. Why? Because it didn't finish telling the story or it goes in a completely different direction or, you know, actors don't come back. Really? You got to recast some of the main people that that's frustrating. And that's the risk you take when you either green light something that's going to be expensive, but also could potentially have impacts that come from other places. Maybe the studio goes under, maybe they shelve it halfway through because it's massively over budget, but you're exactly right. I think when it comes to these big properties, it's not the fans that are driving it. It's the money. And I wonder too, you know, is this going to, I don't know how much money Dune's going to make, but I know how much it needs to make, at least to, to feel like it's going to be profitable or at least sustainable. I think that it needs to be finished at the very least for the sake of giving us a complete story and at least feeling like Dune part one was worth filming, right? I mean, even if the second part isn't as great technically or otherwise, at least we're finishing off what we started. Well, I think it, it most likely there's been footage shot. I, I would be hard pressed to believe that there's nothing about the finale in the second half already accomplished. Like, you know, because there are probably there are moments that directly connect to what we're seeing at the end. I can't imagine they just cut it off right there didn't shoot anything past that point, even though they were all on location and had everything. You know what I'm saying? Like reality tells you that they probably did or logic tells you they probably did. The other thing that's interesting here is if WB is going to go all in on Dune. So the books, this book is a two movie adaptation. You can do this book and be good, but there's a lot more and there's a lot more with characters that we've seen that aren't going to necessarily feature in the second half of the movie that you could expand. And then those bit players become bigger pieces of a new film or whatever. There's also Dune the Sisterhood, which is all about the Bene Gesserit. And that has been greenlit for a couple years now and supposed to be in the works at HBO Max as a series. So if you're going to go all in on it, you have to have the Big Daddy complete 
to be fueling this fire this whole this whole franchise creation that you're trying to make right it's like star wars uh, if you're gonna have a star wars individual mandalorian series you've got to have the movies to back up kind of interest to get to the point to where people care about the mandalorian and so i think that they're looking at maybe going that direction with it probably and and it, i can't imagine it was never going to be greenlit i just i can't it, i i think it would have had to been so utterly awful that like that why would they even release it i just i can't even imagine what what would have caused them to not make a part two i just can't like yeah. how bad it would have had to been yeah release wise and they would have known going in what the re reaction was going to be at least an idea of it because they do test screening stuff so yeah i did want to mention though but uh you had written something in the notes about the like the designs and yes. i want to talk about that because yes. you talked about the spaceship that looks sort of like a rival uh, the thing that stands out like to me is one word ornithopter so the ornithopters are described in the books and i could it's one of the coolest pieces of science fiction vehicle design i think i've ever seen in my life i just absolutely love the way they look they are so badass the way they have they look like a wasp you know or like a actually not like a like look at a dragonfly is what they look like buzzing through the desert um the way that they move and they can you know maneuver in various different ways whether it's hovering up down straight up and down like a, a harrier you know left to right all sorts of different moves and then watching one when it loses one of its wings and they're trying to keep it on track and they're they're flying with with you know only a couple out of four wings and the, those were probably some of the best sequences in the film for me the other one i mean i love the design as a whole i think everything about it is absolutely incredible and awe inducing i just stare at the screen and i'm just like man that looks cool <laughs> but um the the laser that the harkonnens um use when they shoot it down and it's just buzzing through it reminds me of a video game where you've i've played multiple video games with like lasers where you can like shoot through a wall and it's like you see it cutting through as it's chasing down it whatever it is the target is and watching that happen as it's cutting through you know their fortress area and chasing them across was just super cool uh to see and then some of the shots with the way that Denis frames the attacks. So there's a moment when, and oh gosh, I'm gonna forget what they're called, but not the Harkonnens. Um, it's the other faction that is there and they are just the incredible like warrior faction that they've enlisted to assist them. But their warriors are dropping down from their ships and there's like a whole battalion of them and you just see them coming down and you can't even really see any sort of like wire it's it's very much but it's very much like you would see like in black hawk down right if if you had soldiers coming out of a helicopter but the way that they're just dropping down silently you hear nothing but like a hint of like zimmer's score in the background it's just it's so subtle it's so quiet and it really evokes that sense of stealth that they were going for instead of like a big bombastic like fearful nature and so some of the design choices like that and the way the suits work with their force fields i was worried about how they were going to make that actually look interesting visually and i thought that they did a really great job of expressing like those force fields because that's a big part of this universe is that they all wear these little like force fields that protect against like blunt projectiles but the the whole point is if you go slow you can get through them and it's you know it's contrary to what your nature is when you're fighting to want to go slow uh, you have to and that's where you know what paul's being taught in the beginning is like you know you can't just go in with rage and uncontrolled abandon because it doesn't work you're not going to get through these force fields you have to like be patient and show restraint and wait for that moment and strike when you you know have the upper hand and like it's it's really a brilliant way to show it visually the way they did with like the blue shield and the red once it has something going through it 
Yeah. Did anything stand out to you? Well, I I think one of my favorite set pieces was the rescuing of the uh, of the harvester crew. I thought that was pretty fantastic because oh, yeah. we got our first glimpse of the of the worm or the what I would call the the trimmer of the future. <laughs> And unfortunately, Kevin Bacon is not yelling, you know, F you, you know, when they you know, finally get him or whatever. But the, the bigness of these creatures and how it wasn't like you got this giant worm that just kind of reaches out of the sand and just eats. No, it is all encompassing and it just consumes and takes this giant harvester. But everything leading up to that, just the rescue and the mysticism that kind of lives in that moment that we get hints of with the voice. And I, I love that echo of, of when he says, um, I, yeah, I recognize your steps, even though he can't, you know, it's, it's loud. And I, I thought that you get these pockets of magic or supernatural belief that live in this world that I definitely want to find out more of. I also found it interesting that unlike something like Star Wars, that's like a long time ago, we're getting all this cool technology. I always joke when I'm thinking, then how did we devolve into <laughs> into rotary phones, right? When a long time ago, they had these cool this cool weaponry. What I thought was really neat about Dune, and this is probably something that is right out from the book is i mean this is thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years in the future doesn't say earth or anything like that but we know that this is humanity how they've evolved and there's not a lot of like computer-based technology there's not a lot of ai it's really mechanical it's very much a a cold universe a, a steel universe where you have a lot of you know muted colors that sort of reemphasize the fact that these are humans that have had to evolve without the use of something. So not knowing the history or not knowing kind of the backstory of how we got here, it's really interesting to think that they could have given up things or they had to they they lost the ability to fight. Maybe there was a big war and there was a treaty or something like that. And it's just it's those types of things that intrigue me, but I'm more inclined to watch the repercussions or watch the results of that and how they've evolved and how spice has become the currency, how it's like, this is the thing and the power that it has. I thought all those elements really added to my enjoyment of, of kind of living in this world for a couple hours. Yeah. So I can't believe we didn't talk about the worms, but or I haven't mentioned the worm, but anyway, I wanted, I'll get back. The point you just made, so it is our world. That's the thing. Like, it is Earth. Earth existed. This is set in the year, like, 10,100 and something. So Earth was there. And eventually, like, they left Earth. And there was space-folding technology that allowed them to travel across the galaxy. And this is sort of like the evolution of the species over the course of imagine what i guess 8000 years in the future so that's a long long time and this is where it's gone and they mention this and they don't do huge exposition dumps to explain it in super detail but they do explain like spice is how they use travel for the spaceships like that's how they get to all of these unique worlds and they're able to use this specific transfer technology right it's like if you needed a certain type of fuel to go into light speed or hyperspace, you know, it's that kind of concept. That's what makes spice so valuable in the world. And that's what's critical about it. Why it's such a like big point politically um, for the entire empire, because who controls it controls travel and transport and the ability to get across the universe essentially. So it's, it's a big, big deal and yet that same element is very special to the people that live there for its hallucinogenic you know religious and its mystical properties it's very very colonialism like that's what it's all about you know it's about someone coming to america because we want the gold um, but you're taking out the entire species that lives there in order to take the gold away from them they didn't care about the gold the way that you cared about the gold. You know what I mean? Like it's not that that's important to them. And and that's 
the, one of the interesting points about Dune is that like here we are 8,000 years later, nothing changes. <laughs> it, it doesn't, it's just a cycle, right? A cycle of needing a savior and always looking for that. And maybe you get one, but ultimately does that mean it's going to stop and never going to happen again? Or is it just going to eventually, is the world like doomed to this cycle? Is that what humanity is? And, you know, again, there's just so many, you're right. There's so much detail that you could get in the books. And I think that that's brilliant because I think people that want it, go read the books, go read the books. They're there. If you want the detail, if you're intrigued beyond the things you see and you want the backstory, go get it, go enjoy it. You know what I mean? You don't need every little thing filled in. And then maybe the movies will be even more enjoyable for you, or maybe not, who knows? But, you know, the Harkonnens, like explaining and understanding why they are depicted the way they are like why is the baron so gigantic and what is it about his appearance you know he's there he's all about excess and um sloth and you know he's got that scene that's very reminiscent of denethor in lord of the rings eating those tomatoes where it's like just sloppy like gross that's meant to show his gluttony and i don't know there's just so much more um that you can find out about the universe if you're intrigued it doesn't make it a bad movie that every little detail is not into it you know that's not what movies are it's just not and i think that most people realize that and that's why this has been such a hit yeah and i'm glad it's a hit i mean I, i'm always gonna root for most movies to succeed <laughs> that I can at least get on board with whether or not I'm completely into the genre. But I think after watching this, it's definitely a movie that I think everybody who appreciates big movies and epic storytelling, you know, watch it once and enjoy it. Enjoy it on the big screen. Enjoy it on HBO Max, but really enjoy it on the big screen if you can, it's, you know, whatever. But yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely one that I will see the second part and and we'll see it for if for no other reason than just to complete my storytelling need to have a start, middle, and end. And so with that, we will call it a night and call it an episode for this one. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening to us. If you have more thoughts, come join us in our Facebook group or on Discord. We love good conversation. If you liked it, if you didn't, man, we just want to know what you thought in the meantime we are going to get out of here we are coming back next week it's halloween we're going to be recording we're going to be doing our episode on last night in soho edgar wright aaron's already seen it he's giving me a little kind of question mark like hey i'm praying for you i hope you enjoy it. it's really good but this was one that was on my list even after seeing the trailers i think it'll be all right i'm intrigued and you know he said there's some good stuff to talk about so I'm looking forward to that conversation. We hope that you are. So join us next week for that. In the meantime, we are out of here. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group, a link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.